Today's episode of Travels and Music contains what some people would call offensive language. Now, I'm not exactly sure what's so offensive about certain four-letter words, but if you don't like swearing or if you have small children within earshot, it might be best to skip this one. Which is to say, listener discretion is advised. Hello and welcome, fellow music lover. My name is Zachary Stockhill, and you are listening to Travels in Music, the podcast that shares stories about music from all over the world and explores a musical planet. Thanks for joining me today. My guest today has been traveling longer and further than just about anyone else I know. Over the past 25 years, Rolf Potts has covered the better part of the planet in his travels. He is perhaps best known as the author of Vagabonding, a book that remains just as widely read and influential among long-term travelers today as it was when it was first published 13 years ago. Vagabonding mixes practical advice with philosophical insights about the value of travel, and it was, as it was for many travelers of my generation, my introduction to Rolf's work. Rolf's writing has also appeared in The New Yorker, National Geographic Traveler, The Guardian, and many other publications. But the main reason I wanted to talk to Rolf today is to ask him about a brand new book he wrote, examining what some might call some unusual or uncharacteristic subject matter. Rolf just released a new book about the Houston rap legends The Ghetto Boys, and more specifically, their seminal self-titled 1990 album. This was one of the first quote-unquote mainstream albums, with a lot of four-letter words, and hilarious, bizarre, and occasionally disturbing subject matter. It was, for many youth, an album to be listened to and examined in secret, far from the prying ears and eyes of concerned parents. And these parents weren't alone in their concern. The album's distributor originally refused to release it, citing its violent and depraved lyrics. When The Ghetto Boys was finally released, chain stores refused to stock it, concert promoters canceled the group's performances, and veteran rock critic Robert Christgau declared the group, quote, sick motherfuckers, unquote. I wanted to speak to Rolf today to learn about why he wrote a book on the Ghetto Boys, what he learned in the process, and what originally drew him to the album as a teenager. But our conversation ended up veering into many different directions, and we also talk about Rolf's relationship to music while he travels, how age is impacting his travel habits, long-term travel and egotism, Simon and Garfunkel, and somehow, my raging hormones as a 14-year-old boy. So I hope you enjoy sitting in on my wide-ranging conversation with the American writer, Rolf Potts. So, first off, I'd like to talk about your upcoming book on the Ghetto Boys and their 1990 album, The Ghetto Boys. And I'd like to know more specifically about what impact that album had on you as a younger man and how it impacted your desire to travel and to see more of America. Well, it it dovetails with my first vagabonding trip around the United States in 1994 uh, when I was living in a van and I spent seven and a half, eight months traveling around the United States. And 
I was I was an indie rock guy. I mean, they didn't call it indie rock back then. I think they called it alternative. But I was living in the Pacific Northwest when grunge was breaking. I was in college. Um, but the Ghetto Boys was was effective affecting to me. One, I don't know if you're familiar with that album. It was a it was a Rick Rubin remix of their 1989 album Grip It on That Other Level, and um, it's a very very raw and lyrically offensive album. Um, well, just that's... just for context, I mean, I, the, I think on the first song on the album, there's a line literally like "fuck the radio stations." That's that's like the first song on the album. Yeah, the first song is called "Fuck 'Em," um, which in the book I call sort of their their thesis statement for the album. It's it's one of two songs that's new um, that that were part of the Rick Rubin sessions. Most of the albums, uh, the songs on that album, uh, are remixed or or remastered. Uh, but Fuck 'em and City Under Siege, which is a more political song, are new ones. Um, and so basically, that yeah, the first track on the album is basically um, an offensive song declaring their right to be offensive, you know. Uh, and so that aspect, I, I think the Ghetto Boys album uh, was very affecting because it was, it was more raw than punk rock. It, it was a very boring time in American history, in American musical history. How old are you? I'm 28. Okay, yeah, so this was before your time. Um, 1990 was a very flat year for music. I mean, it was before Nirvana broke. Um, it was sort of the, the era of, of Warrant and Vanilla Ice. And know, like was, Def Leppard and stuff, right? Like all those really sort of cheesy 80s bands. Yeah, and, and Def Leppard had, had peaked probably two years earlier. Um, so music was very corporate, and of course you hear that a lot. There's, there have been many stages of, of what's basically punk rock. And um, even though I sort of got carried up in the groundswell that was Nirvana in October of 1991, um, and, and I think in the 21st century it's hard to compare anything musically to what happened when Nirvana broke because this was pre-World Wide Web, for for the most part, and um, music was so centralized, and, and Nirvana was so felt so raw and real. But sort of my argument in the book is that the Ghetto Boys were more punk than punk rock. You know that they were um, they were raw and rebellious and sort of scary in a way that rock wasn't. Uh, and rock was a pretty old genre by then. You know it was sort of a a baby boomer um, institution by that point. And even though I was and remain a rock fan, um, the Ghetto Boys album, by being so raw, uh, it, it affected me in a way I don't think that rock could. And another thing, and which is a big reason why I um, ended up writing a book about it, is that gangster rap specifically is geographical and psychogeographical in a way that rock and roll isn't. Um, and that maybe rock and roll hasn't been since its earliest days. Um, uh, you know, blues and, you know, I'm, I'm quoting other music scholars, but blues was sort of the music of the African-American great migration, uh, from South to North, whereas gangster rap was sort of being stuck in one place. It was rock bottom, Reagan era, crack, uh, epidemic, uh, American music. And so, um, it sort of, geographically, it was interesting. It was a time when the world was opening up, the Berlin wall had fallen down, Suddenly, you could go any place in the world, and the most interesting place-based narratives were coming out of 
cities. And suddenly, um, there's this group called NWA who weren't, wasn't thinking about singing about Los Angeles. They were singing, uh, singing about Compton uh, and South Central. And the Ghetto Boys weren't singing about Houston so much as Fifth Ward. They're singing about a very specific part of the city. Um, and so again, even though I became sort of this grunge baby, um, and I don't know if you're familiar with Elliot Smith, but he, he, I was living in the Portland, Oregon area at the time, and he played in a band called Heat Miser. And so I was going to these small clubs that a lot of important rock music was happening. But emotionally, I don't think any music affected me quite like the Ghetto Boys. And it sort of created this mythic notion of what Fifth Ward Houston was like. Uh, and so when I started vagabonding in, in 1994, there are a lot of places in America that I wanted to go. I'd never been to New York before. I'd never been to the Grand Canyon. I'd never done Mardi Gras in New Orleans. Um, but high on the list, top five, was Fifth Ward Houston. I just wanted to see what the Ghetto Boys were, were rapping about. Um, and their music was so over the top that I, I was pretty sure that, it, that I wouldn't see Bushwick Bill, the three-foot-eight-inch uh, uh, dwarf, you know, killing <laughs> Killing people with a chainsaw, um, <laughs> right. a, a, as as is suggested in their music. Um, but I wanted to I wanted to navigate that line between what I this mythic world that the Ghetto Boys rapped about uh, regarding Fifth Ward, Texas, and the actual reality on the street. So I actually I actually spent um, I spent a day in Fifth Ward, and that is sort of the window into my book. Like twenty five years later. I'm, I, I end up writing a book about this place that had such a draw on me because of the Ghetto Boys music that I went there. You know that I that I um, you know I guess I, I've been to Whitman's grave and Kerouac's grave and you know I've been to music festivals, but going to a city just because it had been mythologized through you know these rap artists was pretty new to me. And so that's that's my inquiry into the book, and it's for the thirty three and a third series, um, which I've been a fan of, and I think. You said that music nerds listen to this podcast. It's a huge music nerd series. Oh yes, and um, and so so I, I I created a book out of that, and I didn't want to make it all about me, which would be silly because my favorite thirty three and third titles, I end up learning about the group and how a given album was made, uh, and then there's cultural criticism to bear, uh, and so it's I've basically broken the book into thirteen chapters. And each one of them explores a different aspect. Like one of the chapters explores my trip to Fifth Ward in, in 1994. Um, but one like looks at the history of Fifth Ward going back to the 1860s, um, which explains why in, in many ways why the music coming out of the Fifth Ward was so raw by the end of the 1980s, the early 1990s, is that there were a few harder places if you were young and black and male um, just the, the way that history had unfolded in Fifth Ward, Houston, um, it was inseparable from, from what the Ghetto Boys were, were rapping about lyrically. I bring some cultural criticism to bear. There's some philosophical ideas about the idea of, of remix and appropriation because uh, this album was one of the last albums where you could liberally sample other music. And in fact, Steve Miller sued them over the use of his song, The Joker, in a song called Gangster of Love, which is probably the raunchiest sex theme song on the Ghetto Boys album. Yeah. <laughs> um, and it, yeah, it's, just, it's shockingly raunchy. So, so I, I have different sort of historical and philosophical and cultural criticism angles in addition to just sort of telling the story of the band and how they came up and how at a time 
when New York was dominated or hip hop was dominated by New York music and really was seen as an exclusively New York form and LA was sort of having its own groups that the ghetto boys helped establish hip hop or rap specifically as a national music as something that wasn't bound by uh, certain ideas of geography or you know lyrical correctness but by anyone who had a story to tell who wasn't getting heard and i think the timing couldn't be better for this book too i mean with all the hoopla surrounding uh, NWA and Straight Outta Compton and stuff, it feels to me like the Ghetto Boys are a little, not forgotten, but under-recognized and, and under-appreciated for their contribution to rap. And especially, yeah, for, for putting rap on sort of the national stage. Um, I, as I was researching this interview and, and reading more about, about your work in the upcoming book, I was I realized that I'd almost like forgotten about them. You know, when, when you sort of just forget about an artist for a while and then you remind, it's like, oh yeah, they were actually really interesting and really good. So yeah, I, I appreciate you writing this book. I'm, I'd like to know more about, about how maybe other types of music impacted your desire to travel. You're, you're probably one of the most famous sort of um, travelers in the world in terms of just, just the sheer numbers you've been, number of years you've been traveling and your book Vagabonding. Was there any other music growing up that, that impacted your desire to travel? I know that music was a big part of my experience as I traveled, you know, my first vagabonding experience in 1994, I still really clearly remember like the CDs that I brought and that I listened to on that trip. And even my first vagabonding trips in Asia, half a decade later, I remember very distinctively. I think that there's a, there's a, um, rock, which is, which is the form I grew up with. And, and is much less given to storytelling than hip hop. That rock, it just, there's a lot more abstractions lyrically. It feels like uh, storytelling, uh, hip hop in, embraces storytelling almost in, uh, in a way that's closer to, narratively closer to country music than rock. Rock is not a big storytelling form. Um, but I know that th there's some songs that have a, um, there's sort of a longing for other places embedded in them. In fact, I remember being, I remember being like really young, like being about twelve years old and listening to the rock band Rush. You know, you know the Canadian. Yeah, they're rock proud Canadians. Rush. Yeah, yeah. Um, they had a song. I don't even remember. I don't even remember the name of the song. I think it was it was on the album Signals, maybe Moving Pictures, but I think it's on the album Signals. And it's about this boy who's he's dreaming of a girl, and he's sitting in a field, and he has this longing to depart. Um, and I remember that being very affecting to me at the time because it dovetailed with my own desires. You know, I was 12, 13 years old and I was dreaming of girls and I was dreaming of other places. Um, but as far as um, like listening to a song and feeling inspired to leave in a specific way that I would read Walt Whitman and have a specific desire to travel, I don't know if I could pinpoint any one thing. Um, sure. Are the, is there any, like, I, I'm going to preface this question by saying, for me at least, when I'm traveling, there are certain artists I find myself going back to again and again that just sort of sound like travel, like Paul Simon comes to mind. Um, there's one album by this band called The War on Drugs that just sounds like movement, like sounds like trains or something. Are there mm -hmm. any artists that you find yourself returning to over and over on the road specifically? Or does it vary it's, from place it, to place? It probably varies from, actually, my my ways of musical consumption have changed over the years and travel there's you know a, a relativity to travel like i remember listening to a lot of elliot smith 
when I lived in Korea, and I wasn't literally traveling in the movement sense, but I was living in another culture. Um, and emotionally, you know, I, I remember sort of navigating my sort of cross-cultural loneliness by listening to Elliot Smith. Although interesting, you know, Elliot Smith was somebody who I saw live all the time half a decade before that. Um, it's funny you mentioned Paul Simon because he has that song, you know, about how it took him three days to hitchhike to Saginaw. The um, Yeah, that's uh, America. Yeah, America. And, and that's a similar, I mean, that's a very vivid, that's a song that came to mind when I was hitchhiking in Eastern Europe. That's a song that came to mind when I was taking Greyhound buses across America in the, 19, in, in the mid-1990s. And so I think that there's really strange associations. I remember the band Cake. Do you remember the Sacramento band sure. Cake? Yeah, I remember them. I listen to them a lot. I, I really associate them with, um, with like 1999, with, with my earliest vagabonding travels across Southeast Asia. Interestingly, though, uh, I don't know if you, I don't even know what Kosan Road is like these days, but um, in that dial up internet era, I remember having, there's certain kinds of songs that remind me of Kosan Road in 1999, like the Chemical Brothers, like music that maybe British backpackers were listening to. Um, like I was listening to Cake because you know, my sister used to live in Sacramento. I knew about Cake early on. Uh, but then there, there was this other music that was capturing my imagination. And so that dovetailed too. I, I guess like I don't really have a clear epiphanic moment of, of musical clarity in this situation, but it's all, it's all really complicated. I wrote an article once about um, being in Aleppo, Syria, which now tragically is a very, is a very um, destroyed city because of several years of war. And hearing, this is before the iPod era, and hearing uh, James Brown's, uh, I think it was like sex machine coming through the wall from the room next door and going into the hall so I could hear the song better. Like I described it as a patriotic moment, you know, the <laughs> idea that the star spangled banner couldn't have affected me at that moment because I just needed to hear some American music in a place where I hadn't heard, you know, I, I hadn't had my choice of music for a while. And I remember like being in Cairo that year and watching fight club for the first time, um, you know, in central Cairo, and when the Pixies song at the end, Where Is My Mind, comes on, sure. just being transported by that. And then... Actually, movies are a big vessel of songs as well. I remember being in Bombay, and, and when the first Charlie's Angels movie came out, it was sort of a throwaway movie, but it had some pretty awesome music in it. Oh, um, yeah, yeah. What was the big hit there that everyone, everyone liked? I can't, uh, I can't think of it. Yeah. I don't remember, but I think they had like the, um, oh, what was that techno-y band that was The Prodigy? I think they had a song by The Prodigy, right, and they had right. some great rock and rap in it um i was mostly interested in the visuals of that film as like a 14 year old uh young man right. i don't really remember the the music too too well yeah what's well, funny about watching movies in foreign countries because much like you like when you're 14 and you know you're completely um gripped by your hormones um things affect you in a certain way you can watch a certain visuals and suddenly you're completely gripped in your hormones. 
Whereas if you're in, if you've been in India for, for a month and you haven't really had much access to your own culture, then Charlie's Angels and all of the visuals and all of the music are like a shot of heroin of yep. North American culture. I remember being up in Himachal Pradesh and hearing, it wasn't even an artist I knew that well. It was, um, it was a country artist. He, he sang a famous duet with Amy Lou Harris. Um, but it was just a country song. And it was just a great classic country song. And I was never that vested in country music. But just sitting in this tea shop in Himachal Pradesh, Pradesh and hearing that song was very moving to me. So I think when one is on the road, um, music is a connection to home or to other moments of one's life or even to certain sonic textures. Like I really loved Indian music when I was in India. Um, but just hearing this country music song that I didn't really know, but somehow I identified with at this sonic level was affecting. I think that's a fun part of travel. And that's probably changed now that you can take, you know, 20 hours of music with you or 20 days of music with you. Um, on an electronic device. Um, but probably those first, probably the first five years of living and traveling in Asia, I would be blown away um, by a song sometimes, just because I had been without familiar music for so long that it was like being 14 and seeing a, a girl in a bikini sort of thing. You know, it hit you not in a hormonal way, but in this associative way. Uh, I know what you mean. Yeah, I was in a, a Thai barbecue the other day and there was this Thai couple performing Desperado by the Eagles hmm. and it was just totally blew me away it it uh yeah for a moment I was I was back home and that's not even one of my favorite songs or anything but it's um I know, I know exactly what you mean I'd like to ask you a couple more questions uh, we're running a little short on time so I'd, I'd really like to get to these sure so I first, uh, we first interacted, I guess, in, during a video call a couple of years ago, and I'd like to return to a question I asked you during that call, because it's fascinating to me, and I'd, I'd like to know more. So you're, you're not a 20-something backpacker anymore. You're in your early 40s, right? Yeah, mid-40s. I'm 45. Mid-40s. Okay. So I guess I'd like to know, like, how is your relationship to world travel changing as you get older? Um, I think it is... I'm less beholden to that to that backpacker rhythm of changing locations a lot, and 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 that's a little bit of a generalization because I know in Southeast Asia where you are now, that's a very scene driven place. You know, a lot of backpackers will stay on a given beach for a couple months, you know, or go up to Chiang, Chiang Mai and be a, uh, an expat for a while. And I, and I did that. I went down to Renong, and that's where I wrote vagabonding. But my rhythms when I was younger, I think they were more driven by that hunger for new places and that sense that, that weirdly is stronger in your 20s than later decades that you're going to miss something. You know, that if you don't get that train ticket and, and, and um, hit that next province or get your visa and go into Myanmar or check out India, that you might never have a chance to do it. And I think as I've gotten older, I've become more confident in my ability to eventually go wherever I want. Um, and so I just, I'm, I'm just slower. I spend more time lingering in cities. I'm doing a lot more European travel, um, just because I can afford it. Uh, finally, uh, when I was younger, I was, I was very low on cash and it just made more sense to travel in Asia. I, I still love Asia. Um, and so it's, so it's just, it's a different manner of travel. Um, right. I guess just like I relate to music differently, you know, over the last, couple of decades, I've related to travel differently too. And, um, 
I remember being in my 20s and thinking train and bus are the only way to see Europe, but I've spent, I go to France to teach a class every summer, um, and three out of the, no, actually the last, one, two, the last three summers in a row, I've rented a car in the month of August and just driven around France or up into Belgium and the Netherlands, and it's actually a cheaper, despite all of my prejudices and backpacker orthodoxies from before, it's cheaper, especially when I'm traveling with other people, just to rent a car and to go wherever I want than to, um, than to get a train ticket in Europe. And so, so and, oh, and then like this winter, I went to uh, Uruguay and Argentina, and I spent like two or three weeks just in a cabin off the grid in Patagonia, and it was wonderful. And it's this weird kind of travel. It was almost like time travel to this pre-internet, pre-smartphone age where you're just beholden to where you are and the trees outside the cabin. And it was, it was really great. Um, and it wasn't this fevered, itinerant travel that I did in my 20s, but it was, uh, it was really rewarding to just be quiet and to be alone and to um, not have any distractions in these beautiful mountains for a couple of weeks. Yeah, I, I can relate to that 100%, even though I'm, I'm still in my 20s. As I enter my, my late 20s, I'm much more inclined to slow down and to, to really know a few places well, rather than know many places, sort mm. of. Um, I'm finding that much more, more interesting and, and satisfying in a way. Before yeah. I let you go, I'd like to know, so you said in a past interview that when you visit a new place, unless you know when to set technology aside, you're not really going to be there. And I just think this is such an important point uh, in the age of smartphones and social media. And I'd like to know if you could expand on that idea. Like, what, what exactly do you mean you're not going to be there? Well, smartphones and social media allow you to bring home and the habits of home with you. Um, I was just reading... Um, a fellow travel writer named Thomas Swick has a book called The Joys of Travel that came out. He was just interviewed by the New York Times. And he was talking about how there's a whole generation of young people who may never know what it's like to not be in contact with your friends in an isolated place, to be completely isolated from everybody. Uh, right. because, because even though you have a new place in front of your eyes, it's so easy to, to you know, send a WhatsApp to, to your buddies or to you know, post the narrative of your travel to Instagram. Uh, and you're still overseas and you're still in new places and then you're, you're engaging with your environment, environment, but you're not, you're not forced to go deep, you know, that you're in, in a sense, um, yeah, you, you, you have the same, you, you're posting to social media, you're communicating with friends, you're sort of performing your trip, uh, in, instead of, instead of letting go and, and just giving yourself over to your environment, you're performing your trip on, on social media you are even performing it and, and making jokes with your old friends uh, via uh, texting. And, and you're cheating yourself a little bit. And I think this is going to become harder to communicate, you know, just because it's become – technology has enabled – has made travel a lot easier. And so I think that there's going to be a lot of people who would think, why on earth would I put technology aside? You know, it helps me keep from getting lost. It gives me all this great information. It helped me find a fantastic restaurant. Um, when in fact, you know, there, there, there were these wonderful serendipitous experiences that came, um, when you had nothing but just your own senses and your willingness to, to be lonely and your willingness to be bored and your willingness to get lost. Um, and technology has made boredom, loneliness and getting lost harder to do. Um, right. it makes, it makes travel easier. It makes it 
from a consumer point of view, it makes it more fun, but there's just so much you can get out of travel when you don't know where you are or when you are so bored that you, that you suddenly are trying to communicate with the people around you, even if you don't speak the same language. Um, and which is another, um, thing that happens when you're, when you're lonely too. So I don't know if there's a silver bullet, you know, I don't want to be like the cranky, um, older guy who's, who's wagging his finger at younger travelers. But I think there are rewards that aren't being cashed in because people aren't willing to, to separate themselves from their technology. Um, and the rewards, the very private personal rewards that come with being unplugged just aren't being actualized because people are, have this more performative way of travel now. So I, it, it's hard to say. I don't want to condemn, but I do want to encourage people to move past it. That's such a, a good way to put it, performative travel. You know, there's this, this myth out there that, that travel, you know, broadens the mind and it always makes you into this more well-rounded, interesting, fascinating person, the sort of eat, pray, love thing. But I think it's, it's not often talked about that travel can turn you into a bit of an egomaniac if you're not careful. You know, when, when your, your friends back home are in their cubicle and like posting these pictures on Facebook and like, look at how awesome I am. And, you know, I'm on Facebook. I, I don't mean to say I'm above all that stuff uh, by any means, but I think that that's not often talked about that, that like I've met some people, I guess, in my travels where I won't say that, that travel has harmed them totally, but it's sort of brought out the egomaniac in them. And I'm not sure that's always a, a good thing. Yeah. Well, it's, it's, um, you know, it's easy affirmation, you know, when you're performing your travels, especially for social media, where, your bored and frustrated friends who are in their cubicle are saying, Oh my God, I wish I was you. I, you know, you're awesome. Um, you know, it's easy affirmation. It's like, right. it, it's, it's, it's the same mechanism whereby teenage girls or boys make themselves look sexier or more handsome in their social media profiles. You know, they're trying, they're trying to get, it's, it's like those, um, those rats who get a pellet in, in, in lab experiments when they press a button, you know, you're pressing the easy affirmation button. Um, and, and, um, again, it's, it's cheap, it's cheap affirmation. I, I think that the, the richer rewards of travel don't come when you get 500 Instagram likes or when you get people that you already know and don't particularly like praising you in a social media feed. Right. I've, I've recently become more active on Instagram and I've, I'm sort of baffled by the pictures of mine that get the most likes are the most generic travel-y pictures. Um, like I have a picture, like my three most, my three most liked pictures. And I've, I've only been doing this since the beginning of the year, but one is like a picture of a blue roofed Greek church from Ia on Santorini, which is the exact same image that you see on the guide, every guidebook to Greece. You know, it's a very, very generic picture. Maybe picture, they think you took the picture. Well, I think people like those postcard ideals. Um, and the postcard ideals are what people associate with travel and mm. unless you've traveled, I don't think you realize that suffering from, from diarrhea, you know, on a bus and, and getting through it and ending up in the wrong town by accident and then having that town blow your mind, that those accidents of travel that have nothing to do with some jackass back home approving of it on social media, those are the moments that are very affecting. And so I, I guess by using Instagram, and, and you know, I don't want to knock Instagram, but like the, the pictures that I, that I post that have a little bit of a subject and a little bit of a story are less interesting or, or that they're liked less than these just very generic pictures of like the Hollywood sign from behind or a, a blue water beach with a tegu lizard on it from Brazil. You know, just 
pictures that we've seen a million times and that are symbolically linked to travel in a postcard way. Um, and so it's, so it's weird. I, I think unless you've been overseas, you realize that those are often the least interesting moments. And then when I, when I took that picture of the church in Santorini, I was surrounded by 500 tourists who were taking the exact same picture. Um, and so that picture affected me in, in a zero sense. It didn't affect me at all. It's just a pretty picture. Um, and it's, it's the non, it's the moments that don't lend themselves to Instagram that, that have been much more meaningful to me and that have given, that have changed my life, you know, that have given my, my travels and my life more depth. So, um, so yeah, you know, if there's, if there's a way without being condescending to encourage people to, to get past that, um, and to unplug and, and let the battery die and just go out and, and, and interact, you know, that's where the riches of travel, you know, exists. You should write a book called let the battery die. That's, that's a great title about, about like slow, disconnected travel how how do you disconnect on the road like do you you, like in terms of just reminding yourself not to be on all the time like because like i'll I'll try to have some period every day where excuse me i leave my smartphone at home and i'm just without it for several hours a day but how, how do you go about that well i've i've literally not even researched like data or calling plans or sim cards overseas um this happens when I go to Europe in the summer. When I went to South America this fall, I basically just use it as a Wi-Fi device um, because I, I actually have pretty poor discipline. I think everybody does. You know, when it's one thing to go outside and check the weather, it's another thing to pick up your app and see what the weather is going to be like for the next seven days. It, it's, it's a lazy thing, but it's hard to resist. Um, and so that's just been my way of tricking myself out of doing it. Now, there's moments where I do literally set the phone aside or put it in the bottom of my backpack or literally turn it off. Um, but my plan, you know, the pragmatic plan is to just use it as a Wi-Fi device when I have Wi-Fi, and then it's sort of useless except for telling me the time uh, or using Instapaper and things or, or, or a camera in other situations. I mean, that's, that's, another, that's another tricky thing is that, um, you know, 90%, I don't, I don't travel with a camera now. I use my phone to take pictures. Um, and so then suddenly your camera is also connected to guidebook information and all the information I put on Instapaper and stuff. And so, uh, again, it's, it's tricky. It's almost like somebody needs to de- divine, de- design an app that disables your phone um, for certain periods of time. Uh, yeah, it, it's tough. It, it, I mean, this is a really old conversation. You know, there, yes. there's a time when... When they built, when the Romans built roads in Europe, suddenly travel was easier compared to how it was before, and a certain part was lost. George Orwell wrote about how railroads transformed getting from the, the English countryside to London in a way that you didn't have to experience. You got on a train, and suddenly you had no sensory of experience, experience of the fifty miles from rural England to London. When sailboats came um, into play, when when steamships came into play, um, technology has always there's always been this tension between technology making travel easier and t- technology taking away the actual sensory experience of movement. Um, and so I don't know that that could be, that could be my book is, is just looking at this historically. It, it's an interesting topic and weirdly it changes, it changes every six months, you know, that the, yes, it does. the power of a smartphone, um, just keeps, just keeps changing, you know? 
Well, if you read a lot of, um, I'm not sure if you've done this, but if you go back and read what a lot of commentators were saying about newspapers back in the day when newspapers first started to become a thing, it's very similar to what people are saying about smartphones today. So you're, yeah, you're absolutely right. This is a very old conversation. It's yeah, still and interesting, you know, but the thing, the things people said about postcards are similar to what they said about Twitter. You know, um, just this shortened form of communication that seems superficial. Um, yeah, and, but but again, the challenge is is that it, this is unprecedented. I mean, that, that you can literally be talking to your grandma, you know, in a place that used to demand your entire attention. You can literally be, you know, WhatsApp calling your grandmother um, in Tibet or wherever. Uh, and so, an awareness of the riches that that extend beyond your technology is, if you can if you can embrace that awareness, then your travels are are going to just be a lot richer. I think. Yeah, I totally agree. Well, as a as a closing note, so I I close out my podcast generally speaking with the words "life is short," and I've heard you say in multiple interviews uh, and in your book that all we really own in life is our time. So, as a closing thought, would you mind expanding on that a little bit? Yeah, uh, well, it's it's certainly not an idea that I invented. It goes back to the Bible and beyond. But we're born equally rich in time, and I think. We have a, in the industrialized world, we have a conflicted relationship with time and, and optimizing time when, in fact, um, making the most of one's life is really a matter of, of rearranging one's life in such a way that you can make the most of your time uh, because time is a gift um, and it's really all we have. And, you know, money comes into play and, and personal relationships and to an extent possessions. But just being cognizant of the fact that that you know, time is where we live out our, our happiness and where we deepen our lives. Um, making oneself rich in time should be a priority. Um, I think sometimes we get we get hung up on material wealth or monetary wealth, not realizing that it doesn't cost much to to make um, extravagant use of one's time. So. Yeah, um, life is short, uh, so be rich in time. Uh, and that's uh, sometimes easier said than done, but it's something, I think it's a good centering philosophy um, that can yes. help you navigate things. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. So, Rolf Potts, thank you so much for making time for me today. Yeah, good to talk to you, and good luck in your travels. Let us be lovers Some real estate here in my bag So we bought a pack of cigarettes And this is when the pies And walked off to look for America This is one of the many things I love about podcasting is that I can open my show with Fuck'em by the Ghetto Boys and end it with America by Simon and Garfunkel. And if you're like me and you're a music lover who can appreciate both of those artists in, uh, in the span of about 40 minutes, I think that's pretty cool. And that means you're definitely in the right place. Before I let you go, let me just plug Rolf's book, Vagabonding. It's, uh, it really is a great read, and I think it's, it's as close to essential reading for every traveler as you can get. Um, I recently reread it, and I've been 
I read it years ago, and I've been, I've been dealing with a bit of travel fatigue lately. I've been traveling on and off for about the past eight years. I've moved around, I don't know how many times, and uh, reading it was really good for me. I, I'd forgotten how good it was, how inspiring it was, and it was it was re rejuvenating, I guess, is what I'm trying to say. And so I guess if you're an old traveler, if you're a new traveler, whatever, I think everyone could benefit from reading or rereading Vagabonding by Rolf Potts. And his new book on the Ghetto Boys is out right now. You can find it on Amazon and booksellers everywhere. I'm looking forward to reading it for sure. You can also find Rolf online at rolfpotts.com and on Twitter at Rolf Potts. And now we come to the part of the show where I ask you for a favor. So if you've been enjoying the show and you'd like to hear more, you'd like me to keep making these, please, if you wouldn't mind, if you haven't done so already, go to iTunes and subscribe and rate and review. I know I've said it 400 times. Okay, maybe not that many times. Eight times. We're on episode eight now. I don't mean to press the point, but it's really helpful for new shows to help them get off the ground and uh, to get more ears, to get more people listening. So please, if you wouldn't mind, go to iTunes, subscribe, and leave a rating and review. As always, thank you for listening. My name is Zachary Stockhill. I hope you enjoyed this conversation. I've got some great guests lined up for the next few weeks, so I hope you keep listening. And always remember that life is short, so be sure to enjoy it while you still can. Thanks a lot. Thank you.